Hello, photographers, creatives, and everyone else listening, and welcome to the first episode of the Dan Kennedy Podcast, hosted by me, funnily enough, photographer Dan Kennedy. On the show, I'll be interviewing photographers and creatives and delving into their working practices, their accomplishments, what makes them tick, and how they got to where they are today in the industry. This episode of the podcast has a very special guest, one of London's top female photographers, Elizabeth Hoff. I met Elizabeth a few years ago when I stalked her and made it my mission to find out who did her retouching. We swapped emails, met up, and eventually became friends. Elizabeth spent five years of her childhood sailing around the world on her family's home-built yacht, where she was schooled mainly by her parents. After spending time on dry land and doing a marine biology degree at Glasgow University, she decided she wanted to be the first woman to row solo across the Atlantic. This attempt failed and nearly cost her her life, which changed her perspective on pretty much everything. In my interview, we dig into fear, what drives you as a creative, and how she's become a glass-half-full kind of person, despite everything that's happened to her. We touch on many topics, from cutting your teeth in the photography industry, through to how to remain creative as much of the time as possible, which I think she does fantastically. We covered a lot. I really enjoyed our chat, and I hope you really enjoy this episode too. So let's get straight to it. This has taken some time to set up. I am absolutely delighted to have sitting in front of me none other than my good friend and amazing photographer, Elizabeth Hoff. Elizabeth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for welcoming me into your home. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. We've known each other for a little while, both working photographers in London, and um, I was delighted to be able to tie you down to committing to uh, doing this podcast with me. So thank you. I'd like to start straight away, I think, by um, just reading something that I read on your biog, which is um, she spent five years of her childhood sailing around the world on the family's home-built yacht, apart from a few spells at schools in various places en route, including Barbados and the Pitcairn Islands. She was taught by her parents, but what was lacking was a formal education made up for in adventures, from snorkelling with seals in the Galapagos to sailing the treacherous Amazon and being the first white girl to meet the locals. Uh, in Papua New Guinea. In a nutshell, I mean, what was that life like and, and what did it teach you? That's quite a big question. But um, Yeah, I had a very unusual upbringing and I'm hugely grateful for that. Basically, my dad's childhood dream was to sail around the world and he did it. You know, a lot of people have those kind of dreams and don't do it. And now I appreciate even more having having my own kids what a massive achievement that is because it's so easy to get bogged down into everyday life and to not do those special things and create the reality of a dream. And um, I'm grateful for that lesson. So we spent five years on a boat um, sailing around the world when I was a child. We were constantly on the move, always meeting new people, seeing new things, It wasn't always easy. A lot of it was uncomfortable. When you're on a boat, you know, you're completely kind of in the elements. You know, when it's raining, everything's wet. When it's windy, it's windy. (laughs) You know, I had my little bunk to hide into, but it's not like a house where you just hide away and it's all warm and comfy. So a lot of it was uncomfortable. I was constantly damp as well because salt just gets under your skin. But With that, I think it taught me to be quite resilient. Um, It taught me to um, be able to cope with change all the time. 
Um, and I know that those lessons um, have helped me in my photography career. Amazing. Amongst other things. Mm. <laughs> and so how old were you at the time that you kind of stopped travelling like that, roughly? We came to Norway when just before I turned 11. So I started school properly at 11. Oh. Before that, I had gone to school here and there. Um, I went to school in Pitcairn Island for a couple of weeks. I went to school in New Zealand, I think, for nine months in Barbados for almost a year at one point. So we, in those five years, we weren't traveling the whole time mm. because my parents had to make some money now and again. So we settled down here and there so that they could make enough money for the next leg of the trip. But yeah, uh, from 11, I then sort of led a normal life <laughs> in brackets. <laughs> oh, and do you, and how, how were those sort of short transient times at those schools? Was that, do you remember it being quite difficult? Or? Um, no, they were very different. Just like anybody who comes to a new school, it's a gamble, isn't it? Sometimes you fit in and sometimes you don't. Yeah. And um, Barbados was brilliant. I remember that as being really great. I had my best friend, Karen, and we were pen pals for years. And in fact, she lives in London now. We got in touch on Facebook a few years ago. Amazing. Uh, Facebook's amazing. And New Zealand, I enjoyed. Uh, what I didn't mention is I went to a white girls' school in Durban for three months. I didn't enjoy that. I found that difficult. I didn't really fit in. But, you know, I'm, again, grateful for the experience. And um, my schooling in Pitcairn Island for two weeks was a dream. I absolutely loved it. I didn't want to leave. It was the only place I cried when leaving. And I did have the odd day here and there at other schools as well all around. Some were great and some were challenging. But it's just, I'm just so grateful for the experiences. Mm. Absolutely amazing. I, I know you went to Glasgow University, didn't you, after your, after your time at school and studied marine biology, is that right? I did. Amazing. <laughs> and then you attempted to be the first woman to, sew, to, to row sorry, uh, across the Atlantic. Absolutely amazing. We've discussed your adventures growing up, but what compelled you to want to do that? You probably get asked this a lot, but I'm just really keen to know about why you would rise to such an incredibly epic challenge. It's funny that I don't actually talk about it a lot because it's quite a while ago now. And most people don't know that I tried to be the first woman to row solo across the Atlantic. Um, but I boil it down to I need things in my life that that feel right and that I'm passionate about. And I studied marine biology. And although I, I thought it was okay and I'm passionate about the marine environment. I'm now passionate about, you know, the plastic pollution issue. Mm. Um, I'm ultimately a creative person. I'm not a scientist. And therefore, the fit wasn't quite there. And I knew that. What do you mean about the fit? You mean doing marine biology? I knew being a marine biology scientist wasn't my calling. Right. Because... I didn't wake up and think about it every morning. I didn't get ex like really, really excited about it. And my goal in life was to have a career that Monday was the same as Friday. You know, to go to work and have that Monday feeling, uh, that Monday morning blues thing that people talk about on the radio the whole time. I just didn't want that. And actually while looking for my calling, 
because I came to London not knowing really anybody, but I always had this feeling I wanted to live in London because when I found what I wanted to do, London would be perfect for that because you can do anything in London. And I sort of came here with that mission of finding what I wanted to do. And I spent two years working um, as a temp and then I got a full-time job in the city as a recruitment consultant and absolutely wasn't my thing either. And through those two years in the city, again, a great experience, I decided that I needed something more interesting and a challenge that I felt passionate about. And I, I, I figured out that trying to row solo across the Atlantic would tick those boxes for me. <laughs> um, and it did, you know, it did. It, it suddenly, I was motivated, I trained, I raised sponsorship for that project and it got me out of my comfort zone completely and it changed my life. And it wasn't successful. I capsized, it was very dramatic, but I survived. And after that, I became a photographer. It was like it sort of opened the door to finding what I was looking for. Amazing. So it started me on the path. Wow. If you feel comfortable about talking about it, can you tell, can you tell me just a little bit about what happened leading up to the capsize? Yeah. Just tell um, me a bit. I'm interested to know where you set off from and how long you'd been on the boat. And, and then just tell me. Yeah, so I was rowing from Tenerife in the Canary Islands. And my end um, goal was to get to Barbados in the Caribbean because I've lived in Barbados as a kid, so mm. I knew Barbados. So that was my route. And I set off from Tenerife uh, in February, I think it was 1998, just a while ago now, um, and it was all going very, very well. And I capsized on the morning of day 11. And it was very early morning. It was still dark. But running up to that the day before, it was getting very, very rough. And actually, while I was rowing in the day on day 10, I almost capsized while I was rowing. And I realized, or the boat just really pitched over and I realized that I was now in capsized weather. Um, I knew that. And um, I decided not to row too late that night. And I s sort of battened down the hatches and tied everything on deck and decided to sleep it out and woke up with this roar of this incredibly huge wave just basically picking the boat up and dumping it upside down. And I sort of woke midair being tossed around but the boat was supposed to be self-writing and um, it transpired that the wave was very very powerful and actually knocked the front hatch of my boat clean off so the water had filled the front compartment of the boat and ruined the self-writing capabilities so the boat just stayed upside down with me in it so I was inside the boat upside down at about 4 a.m in the morning and it was pitch dark in a um, storm. In a storm. <laughs> yeah. What goes through your mind at that point? Um, oh, capsized. <laughs> uh, shit. <laughs> no. Um, I mean, I knew it had happened, so I started to throw it. But I thought the boat would self-right, so I was kind of waiting for you that You didn't to know happen. about the hatch then at that point? No, I didn't. So I was throwing my weight around, trying to get the boat to 
right up. And after about 10 minutes or so of that, I realized that wasn't going to happen. You know, the boat seemed to be stuck upside down. And also at that point, one hatch on the roof of the boat, you know, the boat's not designed, it's designed to roll. It's not designed to be sitting upside down. So that hatch started to take in water. It was an air vent, actually. Uh, the air vent started to let in water. So I knew that, and the the longer time that went that I was upside down, the more water was in my cabin as well. So I knew after about half an hour, I knew it wasn't going to self-right because the cabin was getting full of water and that definitely uh, had ruined the self-writing capabilities, even though I didn't know about the front hatch. Yeah. So then I got... I knew it was very, very rough outside. You know, I could feel and hear the waves crashing over the, the um, keel of the boat. So I basically stayed under the boat in the cabin for as long as possible. I decided that that was probably the safest place to, to stay. To sit it out. Yeah, but it was filling up with water. So um, it started to get light. You know, I, I don't know what the time was, a, a period of about an hour or two hours. I was probably in the hat the cabin under the boat underwater but it was filling up slowly so there was I ended up just having no air I started to get dizzy and I only had about 20 centimeters left of of air the whole cabin was filling with water and I started to get dizzy and I realized I was running out of air so I didn't have a choice I had to go and you know meet the elements and that was the only point where I thought maybe I I was going to drown, actually, because then I tried to open the hatch and it wouldn't open because of the, the, the suction water pressure. But then I pushed it with all my might and it opened and obviously the water just rushed into the whole cabin at that point and I swam out and then I managed to sit on the keel of the boat. And then I thought, hmm, might be okay now. And I also swam and got my survival suit, which was in another cab. Um, another compartment of the boat and put that on because by this point even though I was in tropical water after two three hours of being soaking wet you know however hot it is you start to get very very cold so I put my survival suit on and then I started to warm up and I thought well I've got you know I've got two or three two or three weeks now I can survive this wow. <laughs> in my head that was what I thought even though I'm on the keel of my boat because the boat's not going to sink Right. So, but I had an emergency beacon, which I had set off. So I sat on the keel with my emergency beacon in one hand and my bag of flares in the other, hoping that somebody would be picking up that SOS signal. And when they did, and if they came to find me, I would make it known where I was with my flares. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. How, how far off land were you? At that point, I was about land. 550 miles off land, nautical miles, which is about uh, six, seven hundred miles. Well, kilometer, I have to work it out, but a long way in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there's just sea and sea and sea. There is no land. You can't see any land. There is just sea. So I mean, happened? if nobody, if if somebody didn't find me, I wasn't going to be okay. You know, for the boat to drift over to the other side. Would probably have taken two, three months. Very unlikely I would have survived that. So what happened next? So they did pick up the emergency signal 
and it was registered with the emergency rescue services in Norway because that's where I'd registered the beacon. So the Norwegian um, station picked up the satellite signal and notified Tenerife Search and Rescue because they are the closest to the point of where I was and they sent out a search and rescue plane to find me. So I probably about midday I was sitting there hoping somebody would come and suddenly a plane appeared in the distance. And I was sitting there singing I Will Survive actually a lot of the time, <laughs> which sounds very cheesy. Were but, you really? Uh, yeah. And uh, I kind of really believed I'd be okay. I guess you haven't really... I, I'm a big believer in kind of trying to direct your energy in a positive way. So Because... You know, there's no point in believing anything else anyway. Even if it's not going to be okay, what's the point in worrying about it, right? Yeah. Uh, um, and I really chose to sit there and believe that somebody was coming to find me. And, uh, yeah, but I was singing. I was a bit distracted at the point where the plane arrived. I don't know what. I was just looking at the waves. And, and suddenly the plane was above me, and I was sort of scrabbling to get my emergency flare out. And I managed to set it off, but it went off behind the plane and I was like oh god it's flown past me what if they don't see it <laughs> and then I was looking at the plane and it sort of disappeared over the horizon I thought oh dear have I missed it and then it turned and that's when I knew I was going to be okay what was that feeling like great <laughs> <laughs> so they dropped some massive uh, ink bombs around me massive green ink bombs it's the way because when you're so small in the ocean on the sea you can't really it's very difficult to see anybody very difficult to see me sitting on a keel of a very small boat so they um cover covered the ocean around me in green ink and um, also dropped down a survival uh, raft and um, i managed to go and get that and tie that to my boat and i sat in there and they got a ship um, the nearest ship to me was a Norwegian oil tanker called Stardiep, and they came and picked me up. Wow! Yeah. So they didn't. So they they dropped. So the plane dropped the um, it, it dropped the emergency uh, life raft and then left. Yeah. And and could you could, could you? So you weren't in communication with them really then? No, I wasn't. No, but it actually hung around for a bit and steered the oil tanker towards me. Right. So it was going back and forwards between me and the oil tanker. But you didn't know what was happening then, did I you? I didn't, but I figured out what was happening. Wow. I kind of thought that's what was happening because wow. it kept coming back and then disappearing and then coming back. And it was kind of checking me and sort of leading the boat towards me, which was amazing. Wow. And I'm very, very grateful. I'm going to really jump around for a minute because it, that, that's such an epic story. And I just want to ask you, after experiencing that and being so close to death, is there anything like, are you, are you ever, you must never be challenged in anything like that way in what your day-to-day -day life is now. Once you've been through that, you must feel, do you feel like as resilient as hell? Yeah, I think about this sometimes. I think I probably am quite resilient, but I'm still, I'm a, I'm a bit of a stress ball. I still manage to get myself stressed. 
<laughs> yesterday I didn't have broadband and uh, I was saying you know but I, I do like to use the term nobody died <laughs> a lot you yeah. know and it, it's important to put things into perspective yeah. and I I do think that that experience has put everything that came behind it in perspective a lot of the time and you know nothing much is very dangerous compared to that. Mm. So it's probably a good marking point. Do you think that's why you've been as successful as a photographer as you have been? Maybe. I don't take things personally, you know, um, but that's also um, a conscious choice um, because you can't. What I've realised, to be successful in photography you have to really believe in your vision. And a lot of the time people, other people don't necessarily agree with it. But to create what comes from you, you know, being true to yourself and your creative vision is what will ultimately make you successful. So you have to listen to that voice. Wow. So how do you think that near-death experience has formed you, I suppose, as a photographer? It's definitely made me more resilient because after that, I just felt much braver. You know, you only have one life and you've got to live it. And it became very, very clear that in a moment things can change. And I appreciate that even, even now more than ever. You know, we have to live today. So if you're passionate about something, you've got to do it. And I sort of came out of that going, well, I want to be a photographer. I don't know where the, clar the clarity came through that experience that I should just go for it um, because I thought I, I wanted to do it, but I didn't think I could do it. And I thought, well, I might fail, but I've now had an epic fail already, so why not have another one? <laughs> <laughs> and then it turned out that actually it, it was, I was kind of okay at it, you know, and it made me feel alive. And it excited me. And Mondays were just as exciting as Saturdays now. So that felt right. And I didn't make much money for a while. My mum used to phone me up and go, so you're a photographer now. That's great. Have, so how much money did you make this week? <laughs> I'd be like, well, nothing. But, you know, that's not the point. I, I got to go on this set and this set. And I'm. it's like I'm studying, but I'm getting paid like 20 quid a day for the experience instead <laughs> to, to carry another photographer's bag. So I assisted for two years, um, building up my portfolio. And yeah, through my sort of um, experience as a recruitment consultant in the city of picking up a phone and speaking to people and maybe the fearlessness of having almost died on the Atlantic, maybe those two things just helped me pick up the phone and network and tell people I love their work and could I come and assist them. And so I learned from other photographers and slowly built up my folio. And within two and a half years, I was shooting my own jobs. And wow. kind of, I mean, I started at the bottom. I did, you know, makeover shoots. I would do anything anybody would pay me to do. Just, I'm interested to know, um, just take me to the point at which, or take us to the point at which you, when you were doing your first few jobs assisting, what was that like? How did you get them? How did you get those jobs assisting? Did you, were you walking into a studio full of 
packs and heads and equipment <laughs> thinking nerve-wracking what is all this equipment and, yeah, yeah yeah definitely yeah my boyfriend who's now my husband Hugh had a friend who was a photographer and it was like this one little link into a world that I thought I wanted to be in and his name was Grant Sainsbury and he was and still is a a, a very good photographer and at the time he was shooting FHM and yeah. So I, my first shoot that I assisted on was an FHM shoot actually. And um, yeah, I remember he was kind of, he's very vocal. He's like, Oh, I hate the lighting. And he'd like pull off the Polaroid and throw it, you know, on the floor. And I remember picking one up going, what is he talking about? <laughs> this looks really good to me, you know? And I just thought everything he did was amazing and I realized then that, you know, my eye for lighting hadn't been developed, for example. And you have to develop these things. And I had to, I learned, I started absolutely from scratch, learning about the ratios of shutter speed and aperture and light quality and the different light. Was he helpful, Grant? Did he help you with that? Yes, but I, I didn't want, you know, as an assistant, I was very aware that I was there to help him. You know, he wasn't there to teach me. So I would ask the odd question. I have notes of all the photographer's setups, you know, when I was assisting. But I didn't approach my assisting experience in a way that they would feel that I was, it was all about me. Because it's not. When you're assistant, mm. it's all about them. Yeah. So trying to do what they needed me to do, but then learn at the same time. And I, I do think that's a mistake that some young photographers do make when they want to try and assist people. You know, I'll get emails of people weekly wanting to assist me and they'll, they'll, they'll start their emails with, this will be a great experience for me. You know, I could learn so much from you. Mm. And I'm like, that's very nice. But what are you going to do for me? You know, and I had understood that as an assistant. And I think it's a very, very important insight. And that doesn't mean I don't want my assistants to learn from me. I think that's wonderful. But it has to be a relationship that works for everybody. Mm. Yeah. What's the best chance of getting through the noise to get to you if I was a budding assistant and I wanted to try and be heard? What, what would be my best chance of approaching you and how? what would make me stick out a bit, do you think? You would probably call me up. Because nobody picks up the phone anymore. <laughs> um, and then you would tell me how wonderful my work was and you'd be specific. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it works, yeah. you know, it works because yeah. it shows that um, you've engaged. And I would do that with people that I admire, you yeah. know, and I want to work with. Mm. You try and get to know their work and what is it about their work that excites you mm. and show them that you actually spent a bit of time researching what they do. Yeah. Um, wow, that's a is that that's a short foray into assisting before you then became a fully fledged photographer. Two and a half years is quite amazing, really. I think I know many assistants that have been working for six, seven years and are still trying to sort of have one foot straddled in both camps. So that's an amazingly short time. What um, can you remember your first paid photography job? I can. And tell me a little bit about that. It was for the Mirror, <laughs> and it was a picture that went with an article on fear of flying. Yeah. Interesting. interesting. But I got to shoot a model and we had a row of plane seats delivered to the studio. And 
she was being styled and I had a whole concept on scary lighting and red gels and, and, and it worked pretty well. Did you know what you were doing? Yeah, kind of. But by then, yeah, I yeah. didn't know what I was yeah. doing. I mean, I look back at the lighting quality that I had in my early shoots and I think it's rather poor. Um, so that's something that I think has developed further. But, but you know, I think what's wonderful about being a photographer is that you're always evolving and always learning. And especially in the era we are now, I mean, it's just, you know, I started on film and use Polaroids. Now I shoot just digital and now I'm starting to do moving image and we have to move with the times. Mm. And there is no way you can get stuck in this industry if you want to continue to get paid for work because you have to keep evolving because it's moving so quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I wanted to talk about your work for a minute. I mean, from Marco Pierre White, Pippa Middleton to Cheryl Cole and Rihanna. I mean, there, there's something really captivating about your images. I'd love to ask you what, what happens at that moment when you're about to press the shutter? Do you, can you give us a little insight into your head in that moment? I want it to be as if I'm standing right next to you. Do you say anything, tips for putting them at ease? You know, what, you know, just tell me, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to go into too much detail. I want an insight into that real moment just before you're about to, to start shooting with the person you're there on set and everything's ready to go. Well, well, I do think, yeah, I mean, there's one thing of being there on set ready to go, right? But there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on before that moment. And that's actually just as important as what happens at the moment. So if I'm taking pictures of somebody, I do try and know a bit about them beforehand because it makes people feel, uh, rightly so. I said if I'm an assistant, I want them to feel like they know a bit about me and my work. And if I'm taking pictures of somebody, I try and do some research into who they are and what they're like, what they do, even if they have any passions, you know, so that I could try and connect with them on a personal level about some of that stuff. Um, and also, I do try and think about where are we shooting? What are they wearing? So I don't turn up. I turn up with some ideas and I like contrasts. You know, my pictures, I, I do like expression. And I think in my early work, I sometimes was so fixed with the, the kind of technical aspect of it that I sometimes forgot about getting a proper performance. And you learn that as you go, because ultimately, even if your colors are beautiful, if the person isn't really kind of performing or engaged or you don't feel like you're getting a piece of them then it's not a great image it's something missing it's okay yeah. but it can look beautiful but mm. so I try and have a bunch of prep there with me some ideas some basic some uh, basic principles I'll also speak to the client to the the client and and share some ideas make sure they're on board and then I'll also usually speak to the stylist about how we can bring some of those colors in or clothing or what I think might suit that person to make sure that they're bringing some of the stuff with them that I think might work. Yeah. And then, then when I'm on set, if I've, I've got a few things in place, hopefully, and sometimes none of it works or it doesn't happen. Like when I shot Marco Pierre White, I had loads of ideas, but ultimately he just does his own thing because that's his personality. So then you just have to go with that, <laughs> you know, um, and that, that's okay too. 
Uh, and then, well, I'm in that situation. So then I'm going to try and make the most of what he's giving me. And then when I'm there with that person, whether I use some of my prep or I don't, I try and connect with them. I try and make them feel relaxed. I often have, you know, if somebody's feeling a bit nervous, I will often have a little conversation about how it's only a picture. It's not who they are. We can take a hundred bad ones. We only need one good one. I can delete all the bad ones, you know, just so that I think there's a tendency that we can be a bit afraid of a bad picture and it's the wrong way around. You've got to be looking for the good picture and ignore the bad ones, in my opinion. And I think it's a much freer way to work. So, yeah. Great. That's really interesting. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people are really interested to know exactly about that prep. And I think, you know, as you say, it's really important. I, I, I'm similar in my levels of prep and I, I, I just can't go into things unprepared. It's so important, isn't it, to have a good idea about what you're going to do and be prepared for any every eventuality. We've all had those ones, the Marco Pierre White style ones, where you've ended yeah. up outside in the rain running around where the job was actually <laughs> meant to be inside, staying very still, yeah. you know. So, yeah. yeah. How do you know when you've got the shot? Do you, what, what goes through your mind at that point, do you think? Um, that's a very good question. That's a gut feeling. You know, it really is. It's just like, yeah, I've got it now. I've got some stuff I like. And sometimes it's also that the person that I'm photographing have had enough, you know, and you have to be aware of that as well. And sometimes I go, well, I've, I've done my thing. I've got some stuff I'm happy with. And actually, I'm not going to get any more out of this person either. So there's a real kind of balance you have to strike between, um, ha- you know, trying more options and then at some point going, no, it's Knowing we'll it's move on, knowing that yeah. it's done, yeah, and whether we're going to move on to another shot or maybe even just the shoot is finished. You know? <laughs> um, a lot of that's intuition and feeling, I guess, isn't yeah. it? I mean, it is for me. You know, I, I, yeah, you know, you 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 can't flog a dead horse, really, can you? you know? No. I always remember hearing a story about. Um, a photographer who'd sort of said at five o'clock after everyone's been there since seven in the morning, okay, everyone take a long break. This isn't working. It's not happening. Let's all take half an hour. And everyone rolled their eyes to the ceiling. No one wants half an hour break when the, the pot is empty, so to speak. You know, it, it, so the, the, the energy was lost a bit on the day. So. Well, exactly. And, you know, to get a, especially when you're taking pictures of people, models is different. So, you know, there's different types of photography. I do advertising with models. And then it's not so much about who they are. They're, they're I mean, they're wonderful people. <laughs> That's not, but they're part of a puzzle of an advertising shoot or a brief, and they're there to do a job. And that's very different from I'm taking a picture of you as a person um, and it's a portrait of you. And uh, if I'm approaching a portrait shoot, I really try and be very quick, that I know what I'm doing, I've got my shot set up and the ideas around it, because, uh, I mean, I wouldn't want somebody to be taking pictures of me for an hour for one shot and then, you know, it's just too long. Yeah. Yeah. And there's only so much energy you can give it. You hopefully have a connection pretty quickly, get the shot done and move on. Yeah. Great. Very good advice. Yeah. How do you continue to be creative? You know, how do you, where does that come from? Where, where do you get your ideas from? And do they work? Do you, are you there at 11 o'clock at night, the night before a shoot going through a load of ideas and you're like, oh my God, I'm going to stretch this purple silk and I'm going to pour water over it. And she's going to be jumping on a trampoline in front of it. And then you get back at the end of that day and for some reason you just shot her on a gray background. Does that ever happen to you? <laughs> 
don't know. No. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully yeah. not. But uh, sometimes. Do things know, sometimes you know, not go the way yes. you expect now, them to? No, I do two types of shoots. I do ones that are just my concepts and from me. I do, I do try and do that, you know. Uh, and last year I was doing one a month. Um, I've moved house and moved flat this summer. I haven't been doing any for about six months, but I'm going to get back on it. And I, and the shoots that are just for me, they're my idea. I do them and I can do what I want. And the team that I surround myself with are happy to buy into my vision and my concept. And then I feel like I've created what I wanted. I usually do. Uh, and then there's shoots for clients where, yeah, I can come with lots of ideas and none of them are really happening. But I do, but I just try and get something that's a little bit special, whether it's just a performance or an expression or just anything, even when I feel really boxed in. I think I'm just always grateful to be working. And I I love it even when I'm boxed in and people don't want to, try anything too crazy there's still always an opportunity for a little bit of magic I think or at least I choose to believe that because that's what gets me excited does it happen sometimes yeah because even on a great background you can have a little raised eyebrow or a wink or yeah you know just something in fact can you enlighten us to one of the worst shoots you've ever done or one of the worst experiences? You don't have to name names, but just tell me about a time when maybe everything didn't go correctly or or everything didn't quite work out how you thought it might. You know, I, I've, I really feel I'm lucky. I haven't had any, like, major disasters, I don't think. Um, but I have had a few shoots with celebrities which have been challenging. <laughs> I love your choice of words. <laughs> <laughs> and one I can think of, and, I, and again, I won't mention names, but often the celebrities have PR people around them. And sometimes, you know, even though my client have briefed the PR and told them what the concept is and told them what we're doing, they haven't necessarily communicated that to the person who's having the picture taken. And in this one instance that I can think of, you know, my lovely subject had no idea what she was doing. And she, we were shooting for a magazine and her vision of what she thought she was doing was just the absolute polar opposite of what we turned up to do. So it was incredibly difficult because she's a very strong personality and she didn't want to do that, you know. But I have to say that even that shoot, by the end of shot three or four, she started to get it. And at the end of the shoot, it was okay in the end, you know, but it was painful. And, yeah. and yeah, it's not great when you're in that situation and you just have to really try and get somebody on your side. And, you know, my client, I have a brief. I can't just change it. Mm. So I have to try and get them to understand why we're doing what we're doing and that actually it's, it could look amazing. The problem is when somebody doesn't want to do it, it makes it much worse because there's no performance there. So even though they might have quite a cool outfit on and stuff, they won't see the potential of that shot until they're looking relaxed in it. <laughs> so 
it took us to like shot three before I managed to get a shot where she's like, oh yeah, I look okay. <laughs> like, thank God for that. Stressful days. Yeah. <laughs> but you got through it and you got the shot. Yeah. And um, something happens, you know, in my personal life, I think if somebody was that difficult and that uncooperative, I, I might get quite upset. But there's something happens when I put my photographer's hat on and I have a client and I have a job to do, I, I become a bit tougher. I become a bit more resilient. And uh, yeah, it's kind of like, oh, well, uh, let's just try and make this happen rather than sit and cry in a corner. <laughs> uh, oh, that leads me on to um, being a woman, actually. Um, I wanted to ask you, is photography a man's world, really? And how is it being a woman in photography? I think it's great being a woman in photography. And um, I I believe, I've never really felt any prejudice against being a woman at all. I have a theory that, you know, if, if you just get on and do what you do and show you're competent and not worry about that stuff, a lot of it just disappears. And I think we can worry about gender and rules and yeah health and safety (laughs) (laughs) too much actually Uh, and it can bog I mean it's a killer of creativity worrying about rules and um, you know people respond to enthusiasm Uh, whether you're a male or a female they respond to competence and confidence and if you concentrate on all the positive characteristics um, a lot of the other stuff just disappears, uh, and I just don't really experience it, to be honest. And I hope I never will. Yeah. But it's definitely lots more women coming into photography now. When I first started out, you know, I had quite a lot of shoots. I'd turn up, and somebody would go, "Oh, are you the makeup artist, or are you the stylist?" Wow. And you know, I could then choose to take that as a negative. But I never really did. I'd be like, no, I'm the photographer. And then they go, okay, great. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah. And rather than go, oh, they thought I was the stylist. This is like, you know, um, this is discrimination. And why would they think, you know, I yeah. could go down there if yeah. I wanted to. But yeah. uh, no, I'm just the photographer. Yeah. Uh, and I can understand why people might think I'm the stylist. Hopefully it's because I was well-dressed. <laughs> so rather than take it as a negative, you maybe take it as a positive. Take it as, well, yeah. And that's a philosophy for you in life. And that's you can choose a negative stance on anything if you mm. really, really want to. Yeah. And that's, and I think also in conflict and also when you're taking pictures of people, you know, uh, rather than, I never tell my subject what not to do. I just... Uh, I call it shoot through the crap, you know, in a positive way. So if somebody is just really uncomfortable and just, yeah, not performing in a, in a way that is going to ha- aid a, a good performance in a picture, you can't then go, please don't do that. You know, there's no better way to make somebody feel completely and utterly uncomfortable when they already were uncomfortable. So I will tell them what they're doing right and tell them what they might like to try and tell them that try and lighten the mood with some music. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's amazing how often 
you can kind of turn that whole thing around with the right approach. Yeah. Very, very interesting indeed. I wanted to ask you as well about the industry and where you think it's going. We did touch a little bit on this earlier on, but um, how do you think people like us really can stay relevant? You know, I see you've been um, embracing moving image. Um, how do you think things will sort of continue to change? You know, and are you are you planning for that? Or you do you sort of roll in an evolutionary kind of way with it? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, about two, three years ago, I realised I needed to do moving image because every client now has a website. Everybody has a platform for moving image. So even if they want the stills campaign, they want moving image as well. And so would I if I had my own brand. So I started doing that and that's now taking off a bit, which is brilliant. I'm excited about that. I directed my first proper TV ad a couple of weeks ago. How was that? It was great. And did you learn, I'm interested to know, did you learn uh, how did you get to sort of, uh, I know photographers, everybody says photographers make good directors. So mm. did you just stand to the side of the moving image camera and decide you were going to direct or how, how did you, what um, happened through that little bit? I just, any opportunity to do something with moving image, I've tried to embrace, I've tried to, it's that whole thing about being comfortable, about being uncomfortable you know, um, so I didn't really know what I was doing a lot of the time to begin with, but then I'd get an assistant who knew how to set up my Canon camera and then I'd do some frames and realize that it was working okay. And um, just slowly but surely learning and then directing, you know, a couple of weeks ago was with a proper film crew with a director of photography and an assistant director. So it's a whole different dynamic from a photo shoot set, but I now understand it and I understand how it works. But there's been a few shoots where I've turned up and they talk in code and I don't know what they're talking about. And um, you just slowly learn. But ultimately, it's about the end result and about the image. And as a photographer, I recognize a good image or a bad image. And I'm sure I've got tons to learn about moving image and, you know, angles and movement and and all that. But I can see good lighting. Which, what's great about being a photographer and going into director is that I think a lot of directors who just do moving image, who've never done stills, they've never had to set up their own lights and really control light the way that we as photographers do. Uh, and I... I know that photographers actually gain an amazing sense of light. Uh, And I think that's a massive advantage Mm. as a director, especially I am moving into beauty and lingerie and I shoot a lot of women. I'm trying to do a lot of kind of plus size, just models that you don't expect. You know, the whole model industry is changing we're wanting to see more diversity. We're wanting to see other shapes and sizes and ages. And I am so into that. I love that. And I I want to be at the forefront of that. And that excites me. And I think my ability to see light and shape and form helps me take good pictures of, and moving image of people who aren't just beautiful models. I think it helps mm. me get good imagery for for that. Great, very good. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, I, I, um, I, I just want to sort of um, move to the last section with a few sort of rapid fire questions, really. Okay. But it's been absolutely interesting hearing everything from being at sea um, through to uh, uh, directing 
moving image and everything. Absolutely fantastic. What piece of advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Um, to really find what you're passionate about in, in a visual sense and stay true to that. I think I wasted quite a lot of years trying to be a cool fashion photographer and I never will be because it's just not my thing. I love expression and emotion and a more sense of fun and I love fashion and I think I can shoot fashion with that vibe but I just will never do the kind of cool girl standing in a corner in Prada. It's yeah. just not my thing and I sort of really wanted to do that for a while and you know, now I realize, I think I realize more than ever what my true style is and what I'm passionate about. And, you know, I never regret the past because everything teaches me something. But if I was 20 again, I would get on with my style faster. Mm, interesting. Very good. Um, I wanted to ask you, is there a quote that you live by? Well, there's been this one quote that I've had with me for the last sort of 20 years, which I just loved. And it's by Marianne Williamson. And it's just the f first sentence, really, of, of this that I absolutely adore. And it goes like this. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that frightens us most. And I just think that if we all concentrate on our potential... And what excites us, the world would be a, a better place. Do you know, I have to say, it, it, it strikes me that you're really glass half full. You're very much a glass half full type person. You know, you, you seem to really, uh, you've mentioned several times about focusing on the good points rather than the bad. Like when you spoke about um, speaking to the talent on set and never saying anything negative to them. It's, um, it's quite amazing that, you're, that you're, your lens, I suppose, no pun intended, is, is focused more on, on the positivity. I, I'm just interested about that. And do, is, has that been a conscious, is that a conscious way you, you live your life, really, I suppose? Yeah, it is. And I actually think it's because I might possibly be um, a glass half full, no, half empty, half empty, naturally. I am not naturally a massive optimist, I don't think. And it's something I've had to work at. Uh, and maybe I now am, but you know, fake it until you make it. <laughs> but I think I spent uh, a lot of my teenage years being quite fearful and not in such a good place. And I and I've had to work at it. And I'm happier than I've ever been now. You know, in my forties. Um, God, am I that old? Uh, but. You know, that's, that is the wonderful thing with getting older is that we learn lessons and we move on. And yeah. if we're lucky to be able to uh, incorporate those lessons into how we live, then actually life gets better and better and better. Great. And that's kind of exciting. Fantastic. What advice would you give anyone starting out today in photography? Well, I would assist uh, more than study. I think... Um, you think the, the hands-on thing is... Absolutely think. And I think you can waste a lot of money doing a long university degree and pay a lot of money for it, whereas it's better to just go and assist for a few years and pick up some books yourself, but learn the, from the people who are actually successful photographers. I think it's an amazing opportunity, but you have to do that uh, a lot for free or very badly paid. 
But if you treat that as your education, I think the problem is a lot of people come out of long university studies in debt and then can't afford to do that bit. And I think you need a year or two of assisting to really know how to become a successful photographer yourself. Mm, yeah. You're a mum of two, aren't you? Um, as a mum of two, if you could give only one piece of advice to your sons, what do you think that would be? That's quite a broad question, but I'm interested to know. Follow their gut instinct. You know, follow their fire and their passion. And I just, I hope that they will be brave enough to do, to, to realise their dreams, to follow things that they're passionate about. Which is what you've done, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Just on that note, I think, you know, a lot of us are taught to ignore our gut instinct. And um, I think gut instinct is incredibly important. It's like a sixth sense. And I think we should really try and tune into that. More. Do you really tune into yours? Is that what leads you most of the I time? I do. But you've got two voices. There's the fear voice, which is you could call gut instinct as well. But that's one you want to ignore. <laughs> <laughs> And then you've got your internal voice that goes, I get really excited about this and this and this, and that's the one you should listen to. Uh, And I do have a, a quote I quite like, which is, don't believe everything you think. So when you think it, you should question it, because sometimes it comes from fear. When it comes from fear, you need to sideline it. And when it comes from that happy place of excitement, and this is what would drive me forward, you have to celebrate it. Great, very good. What's your day like? Just give me a very brief overview. What is the what what is the shape of your day like, look like? What time do you get up? What do you what do you eat? What do you I believe that what we eat is very closely linked to how we feel. So um and also how we sleep. So I try and get a good eight night hours sleep. I like to wake up early. I try to meditate every day for at least twenty minutes. But if I can't do twenty, I'll do like ten. I also try and plan my day as soon as I've come into the office because preparation is so important and looking at my priority list, trying to get my priorities right and mixing that with a little bit of time to enjoy things that make me excited or inspire me because that's where ideas come. And if you're just doing a boring to-do list all day, There's no time for creativity. And then obviously I'm a mother, so I get up early. I also get my kids ready for school and I'll take one or two of them to school and then I'll come to the office. And I also think exercise is really important. So I try and work out at least three times a week because, again, how we eat and how we move um, affects how we feel. I try and stay in a positive place. Amazing. Wow. Fantastic. Do you have any, have you got any parting notes to say to the audience? Is there anything you'd like to to leave with us? Is there anything that comes to mind? Just that if we all concentrate on our potential and the positive interpretation of that, I think the world would be a better place. Very wise words. (laughs) Well, I think that wraps up everything. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. It's been absolutely fascinating to hear about everything from you floating in the Atlantic, at the Atlantic? 
Yep. The Atlantic, uh, <laughs> 700 miles from nowhere, through to you working, uh, you know, as an amazingly successful advertising photographer in London. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time. It's been really, really interesting. And um, maybe we could do this again another time. I'd love that. Thanks thank very you. much. Thank you, Dan.